Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Captain and the Keeper Old Time Vintage Hockey Radio Program Podcast. I'm your host, the Captain, and with me, as always, is the Keeper. Uh, it's great to be back, and we're going to have a big show for everybody today. We're pretty excited about it. So first up on our rundown, we're going to be talking about the NHL awards happening amid the backdrop of the conference finals, which is unusual. Uh, we're going to be talking about some of our favorite announcers, our favorite play-by-play men of all time. That'll be a fun one for us. Um, we're also going to be catching up on some of our predictions for the previously aforementioned conference finals. And finally, we'll be finishing up with the world-famous Hug in the Post segment. So, Captain, what do you think about the awards so far that have been announced this season? Has any caught your eye? I mean, are you, are you happy with them? Questionable? What's the deal? Well, there's a couple that have caught my eye, Keeper. Uh, I think you already touched on, though, the unique nature of this particular award season. Uh, we're in the middle of a conference final situation being played inside of a bubble, uh, and we're just having awards kind of trickling out day by day. No fancy awards gala. Obviously, people can't gather in Las Vegas, probably the way they would have liked to have done. Uh, so instead, we're getting some information trickling it out a little bit at a time. Uh, so the first one that uh, caught my eye was the Bill Masterton Memorial Trophy. We touched on this a little bit last time. I believe uh, we were in agreement that this one looked like it was going to be a, a slam dunk for uh, Oscar Lindblom coming back from cancer and returning to the NHL playoffs with the Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, he did not win, but it's good to see that if you have to lose an award that you lose to somebody else uh, in a case like this, who also came back from kind of a, a maybe a little bit more self-inflicted, but a, a personal situation dealing with alcohol abuse. Bobby Ryan um, disclosed his story out there trying to help a lot of other people out as well. Uh, two good guys, two good stories. You, you want to see positive things in the news. And I think that's one thing that the Bill Masterton Memorial Trophy is all about uh, each year, year in and year out. So, yes, we uh, we did feel that Oscar Lindblom should have been the guy. Uh, I At least I did. I went on record last episode of saying it. But uh, good to see Bobby Ryan. Any thoughts on that award keeper? I think it's hard to find a loser in this category. I mean, any one of them could have won the award. So it's kind of a, it's a feel good perseverance, overcoming obstacles award. I'm happy and fine with whoever wins this trophy every single year. So good, good on Bobby Ryan, uh, good for Limbaugh. So it's nice to see these guys coming back from whatever adversity they had. So I'm good with the, with the, the Masterson trophy for you. What, I mean, I think one that we could probably all agree upon, and this would be for almost everyone, is the the Jim Gregory General Manager of the Year Award. And that year, this year, that goes to Lou Lamarillo of the New York Islanders. And I think Lou had a couple of really solid acquisitions throughout the course of the season, and even during the offseason, signing Simeon Varlamov, which had paid off so far, at least getting the team as far as the conference finals. Of course, picking up uh, J.G. Paggio at the trade deadline or near the trade deadline was a great move as well. So, um, and as, as well as Andy Green. So, Lou Lamarillo, is, I guess, um, very deserving of that award. It's nice to see the uh, the old school type win, and he's been a general manager in the NHL since the 1980s. So, probably before every single player, with the exception, I think, of Andy Green, had been alive. So it's kind of cool to see Lou Lamarillo take the trophy. What do you think about Lou's take, Lou taking that that honor? 
Well, I've got a pretty good idea of how that meeting went down between Uncle Lou and the National Hockey League. I, I'd like to imagine he goes in there with, uh, you know, probably two large men. I want to imagine one of them is probably named Tony. Uh, he goes in there, he walks in, and he says, you listen to me. Uncle Lou is going to win the award. I don't want to hear no questions about it. No second thoughts. Uncle Lou takes home the award, and that's it. And if anybody else has got anything to say, they come to me, Uncle Lou. All of a sudden, next thing you know, Lamorello has won the award. Uh, the NHL, they're wise to give it to him, and it's well-deserved. So I think it works nicely. I mean, that's a terrible stereotype, and I won't buy it. But Lou, good on him. Listen, he's he's been around forever. I almost wish that Lou Lamarillo knew who I was and that he respected me. That would be wonderful. Would it be nice to be respected by a guy like Lou Lamarillo? Did you ever think about something like that? Well, yeah, I'd say you might be a made guy in that type of situation. You might be somebody that uh, wouldn't have to really worry about anything. Anywhere you go, they'd probably pick you up in a Cadillac limousine, bring you to your favorite restaurant. And uh, I don't think you'd have anything to worry about for the rest of your life. But that being said, seems like a guy who doesn't get flustered. He's always cool. I don't know. That's just me. Well, he's a fantastic general manager. He's done a lot with a little uh, with the New York Islanders. And that's going to bring me to maybe a different award that I have taken some extreme issue with here. So buckle up, everybody. Jack Adams. Okay. This. In theory, this award goes to uh, the best coach in the National Hockey League. And I say in theory because this year it did not go to the best coach in the National Hockey League. It went to Bruce Cassidy of the Boston Bruins, who is a good coach. And the Boston Bruins were a great team throughout the year. But the award is supposed to go to the best coach in the National Hockey League. Uh, Some interesting points of contention for this particular award. The Jack Adams, as it were, it just so happens to be voted on by the NHL broadcasters, by the NHL uh, broadcast crews and journalists that attend the press conferences, which John Tortorella is famous for being short with, being discourteous to. He's been fined uh, several times throughout his career for his interactions with the media. He does not hold back. In fact, at the end of the season, he had a 51-second long press conference before walking off the stage. Now, I don't want to say that there's a correlation between those guys being the ones voting on the Jack Adams Coach of the Year Award and John Tortorella not winning it, but, I mean, as broadcasters ourselves, I mean, this you got to see where this is going here. This guy got the old screwball. I mean, these guys, they literally treat they, – they acted like a 12-year-old girl and showed maximum vengeance towards John Tortorella in snubbing him. So much to the point where Bruce Cassidy wins it with a cast of guys – including David Pasternak, Patrice Bergeron, Brad Marchand. He's got multiple 50-point scorers in the team, and he's got Pasternak with 95 points. Do you think it's easy to rally a team that had just lost Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals to be as good as they were in the regular season? Don't you give Bruce Cassidy a little bit of credit there? I do give Bruce Cassidy credit as a good coach. But to finish my point on the numbers – 
John Tortorella didn't have a single 50-point guy on his roster. Not one. He didn't have any of them. So to compare these two guys, it's all about, just like we talked about with the GM, with Lou Lamorello, he did a lot with a little on the island. Uh, He turned that team into what looks like a perennial contender now, brought in a coaching staff that can get that done. Well, in Boston, they already had a perennial contender, and the coach, he did his job. He coached accordingly. John Tortorella picked up a couple of misfits, like a Mighty Ducks caliber team from the 1992 film. I can't prove that all the players couldn't stop on this team. I mean, maybe you had a Luis Mendoza out there who couldn't stop, and he may have had to teach them that. And you know what? They still made it to the playoffs and gave it a run. Uh, For me, this is just a hilarious example of the broadcasters being petty and not voting for the best coach in the NHL, but instead taking the easy way out and not wanting to give their nemesis, John Tortorella. What do you think? I mean, you, we've been there. What do, what do you think about this? I think he's definitely blacklisted. And I think he does not even, he doesn't care one bit whether he wins this or not. And quite frankly, they could have done well picking Elaine Vino. I mean, he would have been a great choice, even better than uh, Bruce Cassidy would have been for me. So essentially he's kind of handcuffed himself from ever winning an award that is handed out by the broadcast media. So that's, that's a given. Well, I mean, I, I, it's, I think it's even an, an honor for him to be acknowledged in this year of all years where controversial coaches were like, were dropping like flies earlier in the year. We're like starting with Mike Babcock in Toronto. I know Peter Laviolette got fired. There was some talk about Mark Crawford behind the Blackhawks bench as an assistant coach and the way he treated his players. And I can't imagine anybody being tougher than John Tortorella today. So the fact that in the year of the coach being fired, that Torts makes his way to a nominee is a victory in itself. Yeah, it may be the case, but I've got to say, I mean, for me, this is about the best coach. The best coach takes the weakest group and takes them the furthest. And Tortorella certainly did that. And the fact that you would consider uh, these guys, you know, Cassidy over him, I I just don't, I, I don't agree with it myself. And I think it's a funny example, really, uh, looking at the hilarity of the people who are making the pick. That would be like you're being tried for murder and the jury is made up of a panel exclusively of all of your ex-girlfriend's mothers. I just don't get the sense that they're being fair. I have the feeling that they're being a little vindictive and that's not exactly the panel that you would want on there is all I'm saying. But we'll move on here to uh, a little bit more fun one. Uh, or certainly a little bit more leadership-minded one, talking about the Mark Messier Award. Keeper, uh, Mark Giordano wins the award. Captain of the Calgary Flames. Always love to see a captain in a position of prominence being awarded something major in a situation like this. What do you think? Giordano taking the award. I think Giordano was a, a deserving recipient of this award. i got to be honest, I think this one is definitely more up the category of uh, the captain here. But I think uh, Giordano taking the Messier Leadership Award is a pretty nice is a pretty nice honor. He had 31 points this year for 60 games for, for the Flames before the, the pandemic put a halt on the season. Um, could Calgary made a little bit of a run. I mean, they were pretty close to being up 3-1. On Dallas, which is now looking like Dallas is pretty good right now to go to the Stanley Cup Finals, not to jinx anything. But Mark Giordano has been around for a while. Guy is a veteran leader into his mid to late 30s right now. 
averages a lot of ice time. I don't think that Calgary would be in a position they are in without him as their captain, as their leader. So I think he definitely exemplifies the Mark Messier Leadership Award. Yeah, I agree with that. One of the things I love about this award is that Mark Messier actually decides the winner of this award, the Mark Messier Award. Uh, that's pretty awesome. So he goes and handpicks this guy, picks Giordano on this one. And there's a lot of off-ice factors here, too, as well for Giordano. Uh, he not only, as you mentioned, picked up uh, a decent season, you know, for a 36-year-old defenseman to walk away with uh, 31 points in 60 games is pretty good. So we're not uh, shorting his on-ice performance, but a lot of off-ice contributions. You know, he and his wife have tirelessly given to uh, families in need during the pandemic, and he's really helped to try to grow the game of hockey in the area that he's in. Uh, this is something I love. It's it's great to see what hockey players are all about. Uh, he's at a tough age in his career for a lot of guys where, you know, the sun maybe is starting to set. He's fought that back. He's been successful off the ice. Uh, good, good pick, I think, by Messier here for his own namesake award. Uh, this is a, a good pick. Guy showing and exemplifying what being a hockey player and a captain especially is all about. And that's pretty cool. Like, you know, he's in his, you know, we say he's 36. So he definitely grew up watching Marc Messier play. So the Marc Messier, you know, the, the trophy is obviously named after him. It exemplifies leadership and, you know, perseverance, dedication to the game. Every, I mean, everything a leader would do for him to have the honor of being selected by somebody he probably watched as a kid and idolized that that's pretty, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool honor. Yeah, that certainly is. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, the Hart Trophy. It has not been decided yet. Some of these ones we've discussed so far, they have been decided already. Uh, the Hart Trophy, and then by connection also the uh, Ted Lindsay and former Lester B. Pearson Trophy. Uh, so these are MVPs, basically, and they are one of them. The Hart Trophy is voted on by the hockey writers, and the other one is voted on by the players deciding who their MVP is. But in both cases, we have the same three nominees. So we're going to treat them the same from our standpoint. So you got three guys that all put together amazing seasons during the shortened bubble situation here. Uh, three good players. Obviously, these are your three candidates for MVP. So there's no getting around the fact that they're all good. But of the three, who's your most valuable player? Who's your pick if you're on the committee for the Hart or the Ted Lindsay? I'm going to go with Artemi Panarin of the New York Rangers as my pick. Um, coming over from Columbus in the offseason, Panarin took a Rangers team that was, although he did have some good supporting cast, took a Rangers team that wasn't expected to do very much um, into a team that managed to eke their way into a playoff spot, although uh, – a qualifying round playoff spot um, that was an unexpected run for the for for the Rangers this year, and Panarin was front and center and led that charge. So for me, it's Artemi Panarin by a landslide. Yeah, I think there's similar logic to what we talked about in some of the past examples. Doing the most with the least, you can certainly make that case for the bread man as he basically at the beginning of the season had a team that was expected to be laughed out of contention. Uh, he comes over on board, and all of a sudden, people weren't laughing at the end. Well, maybe at the very end when they got swept out of the qualifier. But well, that doesn't uh, that that, doesn't count. That team did very well with him, kind of running the show over there. He's a fantastic pick. In 
traditional captain in the keeper style, the player who by far led the league in points will not be selected by either one of us as Leon Dreisaitl. Uh, he finished the season with 110 points, but he's not either of our picks. And, and the reason for that is the exact opposite of what we're saying. Uh, he had the most to work with. You got Connor McDavid on your team, in my opinion. Uh, that's a, He's a great player, and he's a fantastic scorer. 110 points in a shortened season is amazing. But when you're talking about a most valuable player, you're talking, for me, more along the lines of, like you just mentioned, with Artemi Panarin. But the other guy on this list, I'm going with Nathan McKinnon here. Uh, so not quite as many points as the other two. 35 goals, 58 assists for 93 points. But this guy was flat out the most dominant player in the National Hockey League for good portions of the season, as well as into the playoffs. We all uh, saw fantastic. that in the playoffs. Yeah, he, he really stepped it up a notch. Now, granted, that's not to be taken into consideration for the MVP voting during the season, but uh, it certainly doesn't hurt. And uh, Nathan McKinnon is a fantastic player. He's a guy that uh, defenders and goaltenders like, I mean, not like yourself, but good goaltenders need to be worried about for years to come. This guy is a dangerous, dangerous scorer. And those are uh, those are our two picks here on the show. Obviously, it seems as though if you lead the charge with the most points, you don't stand a chance here on the captain and the keeper. And that is unfortunate. Well, we don't front run around here. You know, that's not our thing. So, but a question for you, Cap, what do you think? Do you think, first of all, do you think the same guy wins both the Ted Lindsay, a.k.a. the Lester Pearson Award, and the Hart Trophy? I'm going to say no. I think that the writers and the players have a little bit of a different mindset on these things in the past. The year that uh, comes to mind for me was the uh, the Joe Thornton, Yarmer Yager season. Uh, those guys both tearing it up, scoring a ton of points. Was that 05, 06? Well, they all kind of blend together now, don't they, Keeper? But Yager uh, had that great year that year, and that was when Thornton got traded to the Sharks. we got to check that out. Big seasons for both guys. But I, I just think that the riders and the uh, the players have different viewpoints. The players are coming at it from, I had to play X amount of games this season against that guy, and he just couldn't be stopped. you know. And they're looking at it from the on-ice perspective, whereas the riders are looking at the situation a little bit differently. They're looking at this from the kind of the way we're – forced to see it from the fan level, you know, watching the games from that 200 foot view, sitting, you know, in the broadcast booths, watching on the other side of the glass. They're seeing things a little bit differently. Uh, the players know the real storylines going on behind, you know, behind the glass, inside the locker rooms. They know what's going on with these guys. Maybe one of them's a fierce trash talker and the other two are really nice. We don't know that, but the players do. And uh, that's where some of the differences come in. And I think you will see two different candidates. What about you, Keeper? I don't know. I, I mean, I, all I, I don't know if there'll be two different winners, but I do know that I would rather win the Ted Lindsay Award. I'd rather be voted on by my peers as the MVP. So that was where I would be going with this. I don't, I, I, it's, hard to, it's hard to say. I, I'll, I'll go two different players. I think it'll be two different picks. I picked Panarin for the heart. I think the Rangers wouldn't have done what they did without him. As if, as if you remove him from the lineup, he would not do that. Maybe McKinnon wins. I think McKinnon might take the the, the Pearson Award, uh, the Ted Lindsay Award, formerly Pearson Award. So I would, th- I would think it would be two different guys. 
But I also just want to clarify here. The captain was talking about a good a good point with Yager and Joe Thornton. So I just did a quick search. Joe Thornton won the 2006 Hart Trophy in Yager, who had a great season for the Rangers, set the single-season goal record, was an, a runner-up along with Mika Kiprasov. So we saw a oh. goaltender. No goalies this year. Well, that's not a surprise after what we talked about last week. Uh, so far, and we'll, we'll touch on this in a little bit, but so far indications are maybe uh, like I discussed last time, maybe the goaltending position uh, maybe looking a little bit overrated in some ways, but we'll get into that in just a bit. Uh, any other awards that you've seen so far that have stood out in your mind? No, I think that's it for me. I'm pretty good with the awards. I think maybe we could move on to a a, a fun topic for us to discuss here amidst the Stanley Cup playoffs, um, play-by-play guys. Um, normally during playoff time, we listen to a lot of Mike Emmerich. Mike Emmerich is the NBC Sports Network go-to guy for calling games. I think by the end of round one, you start to lose the local announcers and it all shifts over to NBC Sports. So Normally, you expect to hear Mike Emmerich, but it's been a real refresher to hear different voices, specifically for me, John Forsland, who does play-by-play for the Carolina Hurricanes. So it's kind of cool to see a guy like that get national notoriety and recognition doing the primarily what appears to be so far a lot of the, um, the Eastern games, the Eastern Conference games. And you hear John Forsland on right now with Eddie Olchek, but uh, he calls a good game. Um, and that, that call for the, uh, the Tampa Bay uh, pulling off a seven-second victory over the Islanders in game two, it was, uh, was pretty epic. So it's been really cool listening to John Forslund. So it got me thinking, like, who are some of my favorite play-by-play announcers? But, Captain, what do you think? Do, is there a guy that stands out to you right now? Well, there are a few. I, I would like to say at the outset of this that uh, this is not a knock on Doc Emmerich. He's been a great Uh, ambassador for hockey as an announcer for a long time. But you know how we are here on the show. We like to dig a little bit deeper. We like to find some of those uh, depth picks and whatnot. And I agree that this has given some guys uh, a chance to shine a little bit in the playoffs on the national spotlight. Uh, Of this current group, uh, Kenny Albert, uh, Rangers longtime radio play-by-play guy, Uh, He's had a chance to do some of the games out West leading up into the middle. And this is a guy that for me, he comes from that old school rate, obviously, uh, you know, he's an Albert, so he's got broadcasting in his blood, but he, uh, he comes from an old school radio way that announcers were trained. So in the broadcasting business, you know, we, we deal with uh, some different things. When you're trying to call a game, uh, a TV announcer, for example, has some different perspectives and some different calls that they're expected to make. The differences are subtle. If you are just watching a game on TV, you probably wouldn't know the difference. But one thing I find is if you live in a market where the team does not have a dedicated radio broadcast and you listen to a television broadcast over the radio, you will definitely immediately notice the difference. There's little descriptors, little lines in there that you will hear the radio broadcaster uh, say they'll bring up things like you know this period uh, they'll they'll talk about the directions the teams are facing and the little descriptors that they provide you know the puck moved along the side up the half wall down below the goal line moves it out to the blue line you know they're constantly trying to paint a picture for you know an, an audio picture if you will for the listener that shows exactly what's going on so this is not a knock on the TV guys. 
But when you take somebody with that level of descriptiveness, uh, one of the things I've always admired about Kenny Albert's broadcast, and it's really been evident during these playoffs, he's a master of the rise and lead up to action. So when he's calling a game, he's exceptional at demonstrating kind of the lead up action. So for example, you know, if we were talking about um, hug the post segment is coming up in this game, a master announcer like him with that descriptive radio voice starts out kind of at the lower point. And as things start to lead up, he picks up and says that this segment's going to be coming up soon. And in just a second, you'll be, you'll be listening as hug the post is coming up and it comes sweeps around the net and it's time for hug the post. And he goes crazy. And he's, he just got that real way of leading up right to it. And he's always on point with it. I've always respected that art, you know, the, the way that he does that. You don't hear it as much from all the TV broadcasters because they don't have to provide that element normally because it's a given that the people are watching the game. And it's something that if you listen for it, you can hear with some of these guys when you watch some of the different play-by-play guys. So we'll talk about some of those other announcers coming up real quick. But um, I really like what those little subtleties bring to the game. He's a guy, for me, he's done Rangers radio broadcasts on the radio, obviously, in the past, and he's done calls for the Olympics. Like a lot of these guys have done some Olympic calls as well. Uh, Pretty good stuff, very description, uh, very descriptive, rather. And uh, they're great with kind of showing that rising action leading up to plays. Got to love it. So who's some of yours from the past that come to mind? Well, I want to touch on something that you said real quick. Mike Emmerich, again, not a knock on Mike Emmerich. We love listening to Mike Emmerich. I mean, I remember growing up listening to him call the New Jersey Devils games in the the, the early 90s, and that's kind of where my introduction to him was. And it's really cool that he's still doing the games remotely. And I don't know if anybody's noticed, he's has a, a different jersey in, in the background hanging up every time he, he's doing one of the games. So it's pretty cool. I think he had a Cleveland Barons jersey up the other day. He's had a Hershey Bears jersey because he used to he used to call games for Hershey. And I think he even lived in Hershey. So it's it's cool to see Mike Emmerich still doing games. We like hearing the other voices. The one that I, and this is, I guess I'm biased or partial to, I grew up listening to Sam Rosen for the New York Rangers. He was the play-by-play man. Sam Rosen has a nice, a beautiful, beautiful comb-over, which has nothing to do with his play-by-play skill but like you said he's able to rise like Kenny Albert he's able to get you excited about a moment and like every great announcer you need a catchphrase and Sam Rosen's got probably the best catchphrase you could imagine and in the 1993-94 season I think the New York Rangers had the number one power play in the NHL and he got to exercise that skill with the famous call of it's a power play goal I mean they even sell t-shirts for that so Sam Rosen, it's a power play goal. Just that voice. Even if I'm doing something else and, it, and, and the game, the Ranger game is in the background and I could hear that voice, it just brings me back to my childhood listening to Sam Rosen call Ranger games. It's something comforting about it, um, not just in the way he describes the game, but just the sound of the voice. So sometimes it's just the comfort of a voice that's great. So Sam Rosen is the, the first one that comes to mind for me. So I love listening to Sam. Yeah, classic announcer. Uh, you, you brought up a good point about that catchphrase too. Pretty cool. Uh, pretty cool when you've got that one line that you say it, and everybody knows exactly who's famous for it. Uh, brings us to some of these other guys uh, talking about that same era. For me, uh, pound for pound, if I'm talking '90s hockey or, or '90s into early 2000s, the best announcer I think the NHL has had in a long 
time as far as play-by-play guys are concerned uh, is Gary Thorne called a lot of games on the ESPN and ESPN2 channels back in the 90s, early 2000s. Uh, this guy is a master of the craft. Anybody who had a chance to listen to some of his games, we uh, we put up a couple weeks back our uh, Steve Eiserman, you know, famous goal. We were talking about that clutch game seven goal that he scored. Gary Thorne uh, was famous for the most, most important or at least most well-recognized call of that game. And uh, just a legendary hockey voice as far as I'm concerned. But again, from a broadcasting standpoint the skill that these guys demonstrate you know listening to his voice again another master of the, the rise and he could get you out of your seat you could be in the other room and start to hear the amplification coming from his voice they these guys not only did they have a way of calling exactly what they were seeing but also uh, in gary thorne's case he had a way of anticipating the play as well you have to do that as a play-by-play guy to kind of see where things are going a lot of the iconic calls from the 90s and early 2000s were made by him. After thought, 22 years, Ray Bork. Yeah, I mean, that's great stuff. And him and Bill Clement had a pretty well-rounded team. Uh, that was a pretty enjoyable broadcast duo to listen to. Uh, absolute mastery on the part of Gary Thorne. And I think it is a crime that the NHL has allowed him to slip away uh, I, and I don't know this for a fact. I haven't spoken to him. I don't know that he does. Maybe he's done. Maybe he just, you know, he maybe wants to do baseball games and that's all he wants to do now. But uh, hockey w- was better with him as a broadcaster. And uh, hopefully there'll be some, there's occasionally some college games and some uh, Olympic or World Cup stuff that can bring him back. I'd like to see some more of that as long as he's still active and has not yet retired. Uh, pretty, pretty good stuff for me, but now let's get to, uh, let's get down to some of the more, uh, more colorful guys. I think you can't get more colorful than Mike Lang of the Pittsburgh Penguins. I mean, Mike Lang's calls are legendary. I think now he's doing radio play my play for the Penguins, but can you think of anybody else who's got more catchphrases? So we said, Sam Rosen's got, you know, you know, it's a power play goal. I think Mike Emmerich, my favorite one is hits the post with the shot. That's probably my favorite for Mike Emmerich. But Mike Lang, take your pick. Uh, I like, um, you know, scratch my back with a hacksaw. Where does he come up with these expressions? They don't seem to make any sense, but does not matter? I like another one. Um, when, you know, they, when he mentions the goalie you got scored on, he would say he, does, he doesn't know whether to cry or wind his watch. I thought that was funny. Um the uh, I guess another one that will relate to people who live in the Pitts, the Pittsburgh area, uh, call Arnold Slick from Turtle Crick. Uh, that one is like I don't know where that comes from. That's kind of fun. But um, Elvis has left the building. I think was another one of his famous phrases. So Mike Lang was able to entertain the fans at the height of euphoria after a goal is scored. So the, the, those it's kind of cool that somebody has something so distinguishable, distinguishable, and so unique to 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 their to their repertoire. And it's definitely a skill to be calling these games. I mean, I'm stumbling over my words here. Now, if these guys are doing it at breakneck speed, watching the fastest game on earth, there's definitely, these guys are definitely amazing at what they do. So He's I like the one Mike too Lang. that uh, Mike Lang's the one uh, with the beat him like a rented mule. That's Mike Lang, 100%. Yeah, that, that's great. That's a great call. And it's funny now because back then you'd hear these calls every so often. But now if you watch like a, uh, a Mario Lemieux highlight reel, for example, and he was the announcer calling most of those games back then, your YouTube feed will basically 
be him saying, and he beat him like a rented mule 10 times in a row because he said it after all the goals. But back then it might have been he might have been saying that once every couple of weeks. But when you go back and watch the highlight clips now, you'll hear those kind of uh, lines thrown in there all over the place. Real, uh, real colorful guy. That That is a good pick. But I got one I more. One more phrase for him. I had to, oh, well, I had to get, get in the fast lane, Grandma. The bingo game is ready to roll. I mean, <laughs> that's just amazing. Sorry to interrupt. Back to your well, show. That was certainly <laughs> worthy. Uh, it doesn't get much better than that from a hockey standpoint. Uh, but in my case, my next pick here, I think maybe it does because uh, Rick Generate who has called Buffalo Sabres games for the last 50 years. And I mean this in the best way possible. This man is a sociopath. He (laughs) is an absolute psycho, but his game calls are the stuff of legend. He, I can't even begin to emulate the, uh, the amount of intensity that he puts into some of these game calls. If if anybody out there has not had the pleasure of listening to him go absolutely berserk, when Maxima Finneganov scored that goal, or when Brian Campbell laid that devastating hit on RJ Umberger. I mean, it, it is nuts. You go back and watch him, and you will be entertained for the next 20, 30 minutes just watching uh, insane game calls that he has made over the years. Uh, that guy, I, I don't know how he has done it for 50 years. I think my head would have exploded after two games of trying to call hockey with that kind of intensity. But man, am I glad that he did fantastic stuff. Uh, he is a hockey treasure as far as I'm concerned. I love when he when he says Pat LaFontaine's name. It's like, uh, la, 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 LaFontaine. And, and then the May Day call with Brad May. Uh, scores in overtime i think they i think they eliminated the bruins that year i think it was 93 playoffs so rick jenrick i mean for all the guys we've mentioned so far they all have just that legendary emotion that gets you so drawn into the game it's it's definitely an art and these guys have mastered that uh another one that comes to mind for me is jigs mcdonald and if anybody listened to the new york islanders broadcast in the 1980s you know you heard jigs mcdonald call the play-by-play and that's just a quintessential hockey voice uh, no catchphrase comes to mind at the moment. It's just the way he called the game, very in a calm manner, kind of very nonchalant with, with his delivery. And I think he ended up calling games for the Toronto Maple Leafs later in his career. And if anybody did watch Islander games within the last several years, he would fill in every now and then when when play-by-play man Howie Rose would be doing Mets baseball games. So they would always have a Jigs cameo. And um, so I think I, Jigs McDonald, if I hear a broadcast where Jigs McDonald is doing it, um, I'm going to watch it just because I hear jigs. And it brings me back again, like Sam Rosen, to the days of my youth, which I enjoy looking back on fondly with those guys. Yeah, I uh, one thing for us, too, that it's important uh, for us to talk about. We grew up in a time where it was a little bit more difficult to, you know, you couldn't stream everything and listen to broadcasts from all kinds of other places. So based on the part of the country we grew up in, we didn't really have that much of a chance other than on highlight reels and recap videos to really watch the hockey night in Canada crew. Uh, We didn't grow up in that region. And I'm sure that there are plenty of good memories that Jim Hewson and plenty of the guys that have done the broadcasts up there brought for us. They're not, I'll speak for myself. For me, they're not as entwined into my nostalgic memory, although they're fantastic announcers because it just wasn't available to us in our broadcast region as much 
as the uh, American announcers. So uh, for any Canadian fans out there, we, we respect those guys too. It just, we didn't get to listen yeah. to them as much coming up. You bring up for sure. You bring up a great point. I think I've watched watching a lot of older games on YouTube uh, and DVDs that I have acquired over the years. Bob Cole was like the first one that comes to mind for hockey night in Canada. His calls were great. You know, but I could watch uh, the Edmonton Oilers and Boston Bruins game one in the 1990s Stanley Cup Finals. I have the, the DVD of that one. And Bob Cole and Harry Neal are calling the game. So the Hockey Night in Canada guys, they're hard to they're hard to top two. Chris Cuthbert's another one that comes to mind. And I know Chris Cuthbert is, is still still broadcasting games. These guys are just to me. I would almost rather sometimes meet these guys and some players. Like if I see, and I know that we have, speaking from us specifically, the captain, the keeper, we have met Sam Rosen, who probably is the nicest gentleman you'll ever come into contact with. We do have a signed microphone somewhere from Sam Rosen. So it's cool to meet the broadcasters. That's another another exciting part for us. Yeah, I admire all of them uh, that can do it professionally, like you said. Uh, another guy pops into my mind is uh, Bob Miller, talked about uh, of LA Kings fame. He's now retired, but... Man, what you want to talk about a guy that just had the voice for being a hockey announcer. I mean, that guy, he just all he had to do was speak. And it's just I didn't didn't hurt that he was the voice in the Mighty Ducks films. Um, oh, for sure. First, first two, at least. I don't know about that. I don't think anybody even watched the third one. I so the third one talk about that. But but I mean, that guy, his voice just sounded like hockey. Pretty awesome stuff. It's unfortunate he didn't get to. And this is kind of what we we're talking about before. You didn't get to hear much of him when the Kings won the cup because the NBC broadcast took over at that time. So I know he was doing some local stuff with uh, with Los Angeles and whatnot, but you miss some of that local flavor when it gets to the national level. But fantastic voice for hockey. Some good memories from him for sure. I'm glad you brought that up, losing the local flavor, because like I said, Sam Rosen was the first guy I mentioned. You know, this one will last a lifetime. 54 years of curses are over. Uh, you won't. He won't have that. He will never have that moment again. That moment will be. I don't know. John Forslund, Mike Emmerich, uh, Kenny Albert. It won't be Sam Rosen, and that's that's a true shame. And I know the game has changed, and you know the the, the I guess the the national broadcast takes precedence now. So, so that's a great point you make. Well, not to mention that the New York Rangers don't poise to be in that position anytime just yet soon. Well, so, we won't mention that too loud. <laughs> that's also another factor there as well. But, you know, speaking of hoisting the Stanley Cup, um, one thing is for sure at this point, and it's that neither of the two teams you picked to win in the conference finals is looking like they've got a prayer. Uh, so you predicted the Vegas Golden Knights as your surefire can't miss at the time of this broadcast, they are down three to one in the series against Dallas stars. Now that's important because you and I talked about using this series um, as a kind of a measuring stick because of the goaltending situation. So I've been keeping a careful eye on this one because you know, we talked about the amount of money that Vegas has tied up in their goaltenders versus the guy that's playing over for Dallas. So as a goaltender, not, you know, I, I don't want to bring this up to, to rub in the fact that I'm up three to one in yet another round and I'm crushing you in the East and the Western conference. That's not my intention. I want to get a legitimate reaction from you as to what you think, you know, the goaltending situation, is it possible that we are seeing a decline in the importance of goaltending 
uh, Dobin situation for Dallas. Is that situation emblematic of a bigger issue? I don't think it's a decline because then we wouldn't have uh, Vasilevsky starting and winning every game for the Lightning. So I don't know if that's the case. I just think it's not not that it's not important. It's just that the right goaltender can fit into the right situation and thrive. So the team has gotten fully behind Hudobin, who has just stepped in. It seems like he's a real lovable guy. Seems pretty fun, fun loving. I think the team loves playing in front of him. And it doesn't hurt that he's really awesome right now. And he's kind of been lights out since he's come in. So um, disheartening to hear you say that it's not important, the position. You know, because let's say they have to put in Jake Ottinger, who's their third goaltender right now. Would this have still been yeah. the case? I don't think so. I think Hudobin could have been the 1A, 1B in Dallas anyway throughout the year. I don't. I, I disagree. Well, I respect your position as a uh, as a goaltender on this one, but I think that what what we're seeing in this era is actually when I say that the position has gotten less important, I actually don't mean it as an insult. It's just that there's been so many good goalies coming up now. I think that the goalies in in the world today, I mean, from the beer leagues up to the NHL. And that's why it's good that you're kind of on your way out and being replaced by some of the newer, younger guys. But the goalies across the board have gotten so much better that really you're in a situation where maybe 20, 30 years ago, there really was a big gap between a number one goalie and a third string goalie. Or if you had to pull your guy up from the minors, uh, like you talked about. I don't even know who this guy is. Ottinger. Uh, if you had to throw a guy like that in 30 years ago, you were doomed. That game was over. You were going to lose 6-1. to one. Now, it's not like that. You bring these guys in, and it's actually a credit to the talent that's being developed across the board. But unfortunately for the goalies, I think that from what I'm seeing, it looks as though, from a statistical standpoint, that the goaltenders are largely interchangeable and that the situation that they find themselves in really seems to be the deal breaker. So I'm using this Dallas situation as my measuring stick because, you know, we talked about the options Vegas has versus the options Dallas has because Hudobin would not have been their guy barring some injuries here, you know, with uh, Dallas's goaltending. He wouldn't even be in the net. Uh, And I think if you take him out and you go down the depth chart, two or three more guys, I think anybody at that higher echelon using what Bennington did last year and the, you know, using that as a measuring stick, you can pull a guy out of the American hockey league and he can carry an NHL team to a Stanley cup. And that's not even accounting for some of the European leagues and some of the other uh, professional leagues out there. And there's so few spots. It's not like on an NHL team where there's 20, 21 guys on a roster. There's only two goalies on an NHL team at any given time. I, I agree with you in the sense that you need two goal, two starting goaltenders per team. Essentially, that's what that's the trend that we're seeing, at least, where you cannot have a starter play more than forty plus games. It's almost like there's an even split to some extent, maybe a fifty thirty split. And you're looking at Vancouver, for example, where Thatcher Demko came in in, in a relief of um, Jacob Markstrom. So when Markstrom got hurt, Demko stepped in and was was unbelievable. You know, it was the talk of the town in Vancouver. And now Markstrom's an unrestricted free agent, but Vancouver says that, hey, he's still in our plans to re-sign him. Whether they do or not is another story. But I was thinking, of course you have to re-sign a guy like Markstrom, or you would want to. 
because you don't know what Demko is going to do next year. For all you know, Demko could fall apart. You still need that other that other goaltender that you can rely on. And Markstrom had been that guy for them for a number of years already. So I think you need two solid goaltenders on each team that could interchangeably be the number one. It can't be the, the like the, the days of you know the, the designated backup are, are long gone. You know you cannot have a guy sitting on your bench you do not trust to play. You know when Marty Brodeur retired, I mean when the Devils had those you know seasons where he's playing seventy games and you got Scott Clemenson on the back on, on the bench for ten games. That those days are dead. So like that in that regard, you are correct that you need two serviceable goalies who can get your points. And you have to have that backup come in and get your points. You need you need like 20, 30 points out of your backup. That's the difference between making the playoffs and not. And Hudobin was able to do that for Dallas. And Ben Bishop is injury prone. So you have to have a guy like Hudobin in there. And there, he's proven his worth tremendously to Dallas. So I guess that's another way, too, when you look at the rosters and you look at what these guys are doing. So I think we're talking about the same he- thing here. I think you're referring to it as a you have to have that 1A, 1B mentality. But I think the way I'm referring to it is kind of saying that the players, the goalies in a lot of situations are a little bit more interchangeable. And I think that we're both right in some areas here, which is rare for you because you're usually not finding yourself into that correct category. but When you look at the numbers, all I'm saying is that if you've got 32 teams, which we will pretty soon, and you're icing at any given time roughly 20 players on each roster, right? You got 640 of the best, most skilled players in the world at any given time. And it actually works out to be a little bit more than that with healthy, healthy scratches, injuries, stuff like that. But at any given time, roughly 640 of the best hockey players in the form of skaters, non-goaltenders in the world, suit up in the National Hockey League. So with each team carrying two goaltenders, that's only 64 goaltenders. So my point is that if you were to pull every starting goalie in the entire world out altogether, sit them all down and say that they're all gone. Right. And you went down the list and picked the next 32 guys. They'd all be AHL caliber goalies. You could go down the list and pick the next 32 guys. And you're still dealing with a higher percentage of talent in terms of being the most talented in the world at their position, potentially, because you're still dealing with roughly one quarter the amount of total players. Does it make any sense kind of hearing it from that that route? We're not talking about insulting the goalies. We're talking about them being the best in the world at their position, but the best in the world might be the backup goalie on a minor league team. No, no, it definitely makes sense. And I guess it could speak to why the Montreal Canadiens pick up a guy like Jake Allen, because I guess they realize they now need two incredible goaltenders. So I guess that kind of fuels that uh, position for you there. So I, I don't think you're wrong in that sense. With breaking down the numbers of guys and the significance of having an interchangeable part. And that's, I think, why you see teams are going to be going after two starters. So I think when the offseason begins and free agency starts kicking in, uh, maybe, maybe, and this is a topic for another day for us, but maybe guys like Braden Holpe don't get top dollar to go play somewhere else because they could be interchangeable. So that's something to watch out for as the offseason is approaching and free agency kicks in. Yeah, and what we touched on a little bit last time, for me, again, it's not an uh, insult to goaltenders. It's more of a goalies, unfortunately, you know, the, the players, the agents and the players unions are not going to like this, but the goalies bring value to the table 
by costing less money against the salary cap. So a guy like a Braden Holpe could be the greatest thing to happen in the world to a National Hockey League team if he signs for $1.2 million a season. If he wants 5 or $6 million a season, he's going to be an albatross. So the same guy bringing the same skill set you know, at this level, it really makes a big difference as far as what their salary is, because that goes to show you what you can do with the rest. Uh, I won't rehash everything I said about it on our last episode, but we did discuss this a little bit last time too. And, and again, part of the reason being that we were using these two series as a measuring stick for this and the Tampa game, like you alluded to the Tampa series where they lead your pick, the New York Islanders three to one, uh, Vasilevsky is one of those guys getting paid the big bucks and he is delivering by all accounts, but I'm still of the mindset, uh, a few insane behind the back glove saves aside from Vasilevsky in his career. I'm still of the mindset. You pull the second string guy and throw him in there. I still don't see this series being any different. I think Tampa has been the dominant offensive and defensive team. So I, I think that, yeah, Vasilevsky has been good. But I think team like Tampa, they better win now with this guy tying up all the money that he is because it's not going to be very long, maybe two, maybe three more seasons before you and I are having this same discussion and you're looking at that contract that Vasilevsky's getting paid and saying, oh, what are they going to do with this this guy's contract? He's he's just tying up too much money. I think the Panthers are going to be thinking that about Sergei Bobrovsky. That might have been the last of the, the big money deals for goaltenders. Who knows, at least for now. But like you said, hey, Curtis McElhaney goes in. I mean, he did play well for the Hurricanes last year in the playoffs. Curtis McElhaney, of course, Tampa Bay's backup at the at the moment. So um, who knows? But Vasilevsky is, you know, he's, he's, he's doing what the traditional starting goaltender would be doing for a team. But Tampa's team is just so deep around him that maybe McElhaney could be doing as well. But, I mean, the, the Lightning are just running circles around the Islanders right now. I mean, they gave the Islanders a little bit of a, a tease in Game 2, letting them get within seven seconds there of coming out, uh, at least going to overtime. Uh, some of the Islanders are still very impressive. Brock Nelson and, 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 and Josh Bailey are still impressive so far in this round, and so is Pajot. But uh, they look like they're manhandling, manhandled by the Lightning. And Tampa Bay really could have swept this series if it wasn't for Point missing a game, if it wasn't for Kalorn being suspended. And I think Victor Hedman is making the uh, the Islanders regret not picking him number one overall in 2009. Yeah, you might be right. Uh, there was a few people back then saying that Hedman might have been the better pick. If you had, I mean, it would take a lot of foresight to be able to have picked that back then. But yeah, you might be right. And uh, he may have that extra little chip. He's played really well. But for our final segment of the night, on Hug in the Post, Keeper, why don't you tell us about some of the best goaltending performances in the uh, playoff history, some Conn Smythe winners. So I'll try to keep this one pretty quick, but you know, now that we're getting deeper into the playoffs, we're about ready for the Stanley Cup Finals to begin. It got us thinking about you know just uh, the Conn Smythe Trophy, and of course, for me, for goaltenders, I, I focused on the losing goaltenders who have won Conn Smythe trophies. Picking the winners was way too easy, so. Going back and looking at this, there have been four goaltenders in NHL history who have won the Smythe Trophy, but have been on the losing team and didn't win the Stanley Cup. So some of the lesser likes are some of our vintage crowd. We got Roger Crozier in 1966 and Glenn Hall in 1968, but of the more modern era, 
one of my personal favorites, Ron Hextall in 1987, wins the Smythe Trophy for the Philadelphia Flyers uh, against the juggernaut Edmonton Oilers. And of course, the Edmonton Oilers are at their height of their dominance and their power in 1987. Uh, Hextall was a rookie that season, and he, according to Mark Howe, in the words of his defenseman, almost single-handedly won a Stanley Cup on his own. Um, the Flyers were down 3-1 in that series. And Hextall and the Flyers team battled back to force a game seven, where they ultimately would lose to Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messier, who we've spoken about earlier in the show, and Glenn Anderson and Kevin Lowe and Grant Fuhr. And I think you can get, Nate, the list goes on and on. For Hextall as a rookie to take his team to game seven, the 15 and 11 record in that playoffs, um, two shutouts. I don't think anybody else could have stood on their head for that length of time to produce one game shy of, of, of Stanley Cup, then Ron Hextall couldn't have been any more deserving to win the Smythe Trophy, even though he was on the losing team. Um, in an interview that Hextall did after that, he said that that trophy meant nothing to him. It was all about winning the Stanley Cup. And that's got to be the ultimate slap to win that trophy, but not take home the biggest prize. It, it, it would be nice to be recognized as the MVP, but if you don't win the cup along with it, it's just got to be a bitter, a bitter taste. But you know, Hextall would, of course, in that in that playoffs, I think it was in Game Four, where he slashed Kent Nilsson of the Oilers with the two with the just a, a Paul Bunyan like two hand chop against the back of his legs. You know that that didn't deter anybody for voting from Hextall. You know, like unlike John Tortorella, but Hextall he'd be suspended for the next eight the first eight games of the following season. But he was able to finish. He was able to finish out the rest of that series. That might have even been the turning point for the Flyers to get themselves back. Into that into that series that took it to Game Seven. That was in Game Four that that happened, facing the the prospects of going down three one, which they ultimately did. But his fire, his intensity, uh, the hallmarks of his career. That's before he scored his two goals, um, where he revolutionized how to puck handle. But Ron Hextall was the first guy up for me in Conn Smythe Trophy loserdom. Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons that that didn't hurt him in the voting was because he didn't come out and slash any of the hockey writers themselves. He slashed another player. They don't care when you slash another player. They're mad at Tortorella because he takes it out on them personally. Uh, but you talk about a guy that was fun to watch. I mean, Hextall, this guy was one of those guys as a uh, – as a player, you know, you'd have to be terrified. That guy could skate out of the net at any given time and chop you down, whack you, beat you. And as a player, you're always a little bit afraid of, you know, basically any goalie that's not you, Keeper, because, you know, you see a goalie down there, you can't really touch him. You really aren't allowed to do anything to the guy. So if he comes out and pulls a hex stall and goes after you with a two-handed slash, you can't do anything about that without the whole team jumping on you and trying to fight you. So uh, got to love the fire that Hextall brought to the game. Big fan of that. Uh, who, who you got on your next pick, though? Acton Hextall, I'm sorry. The best part about him chopping Kent Nilsson was that Nilsson did nothing. That he did nothing to him. It was that he was being run throughout the game. I think it was Glenn Anderson who might have just run him, and Hextall just looked for the first oiler that was in front of him to destroy, and it was poor Kent Nilsson. And the guy did nothing wrong to him. I love him chasing down Chris Chelios a couple of years later in the playoffs when he was uh, Chelios was at Montreal. That was uh, entertaining to watch. I think he threw his blocker at him at one point. Um, chasing Rob Brown to the Penguins after he scored a goal on him. Also, I think in that same playoffs of 89. But yeah, definitely a lot of fire. On a more uh, calm note in goal, we have J.S. Shiger of the Anaheim 
Mighty Ducks, the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim, when they were still wearing the eggplant and teal, their original color combo. In 2003, Jaguar takes the Ducks on a, a Cinderella run to the Stanley Cup Finals where they would lose to the New Jersey Devils. Uh, but Jaguar wins the Conn Smythe Trophy. The image of him receiving the Conn Smythe Trophy from Gary Bettman, he just looks like he's going to cry. And that's not, and the rest of his team is off the ice already, or at least they're walking off the ice. The Devils are about to get the big the big trophy. It's almost like, get off the ice already. Let's get the, let's get the real celebration beginning. So Jaguar went 15 and six that playoffs, nine, four, five safe percentage, 1.62 goals against average with five shutouts. Um, I think there was three consecutive shutouts that he had in the conference finals to open the conference finals. Um, the ducks were an absolute force that year. Mike Babcock was their coach. We mentioned him earlier in the show. Uh, they had Steve Thomas on that team, Adam Oates. They were trying to win a Stanley cup for the, that was like their last ditch effort. Go up and down that Ducks roster. There's some pretty cool names on it. And they wouldn't be anywhere without J.S. Jaguar. So Jaguar wins the Conn Smythe in the losing effort in 2003. But for, fortunately for him, four years later, he wins the Stanley Cup in 2007 with the Ducks. So mix, that probably made it a little sweeter for him. You know, a few years later, winning the actual, the big, the, you know, the big prize. So that, that uh, had to make the, the Conn Smythe a little bit better to swallow. But in that moment, it's got to be just... I don't know, just a feeling of nothingness. Although I've never won much of anything, so I'll take the Conn Smythe. We play for t-shirts. So in our career, you know, yeah, we play for the t-shirt. We don't get the the big trophy, but that's got to be awkward. It's got to be a difficult situation, like you mentioned, coming out there to grab that trophy when your uh, your teammates have all walked off the ice and you know that they're about to award the Stanley Cup to the team that just beat you. Uh, but that is pretty cool. Uh, cool to see some goaltenders that played so well that despite not even winning the Stanley Cup, that they were voted to be the playoff MVP. Uh, I'll, you got to love those little nuances for sure. Yeah, it begs the question, you know, could a goaltender this year or even a player on a losing team win the Conn Smythe this year? You know, that that brings up a whole lot of other issues. We haven't had that in several years. I think Jaguar might have been the last guy to do it, to win on a losing team. And, you know, we, we, we would love to be the breakers of news here, but it looks like the Dallas Stars have just eliminated Vegas to well, propel themselves to the Stanley Cup Finals. a recorded podcast that likely will not be played until tomorrow. I strongly doubt that we'll be breaking that news for anybody, but uh, still a good thing. we got to shed our radio roots a little bit. We are being played the next day we're working on it it's a work in progress but uh for the captain and the keeper ladies and gentlemen that's all we've got tonight for you folks uh, we appreciate everybody listening and tuning in be sure to follow us on uh, your choice of wherever you get your podcasts from we're also on facebook and instagram and make sure you use the hashtag captain and the keeper start following start liking same thing for facebook uh, we definitely appreciate the people on Instagram, our fans who have been tagging us in images and putting us as stories with us, specifically Mother Puck and Logos, who has some pretty cool content up on his page. Uh, thanks for the shout out. So uh, if you have any comments or questions, hey, shoot them our way. Maybe we're ready for a Q&A session pretty soon. So that's all the time we have for our show today. So uh, bye-bye now. Uh, bye-bye.